please open a Bible with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. You can find this passage on page 1114. 1114 in the Bible that's right in front of you. This fall, we're asking some of the big questions that we all face. Questions about life and faith. And so we're trying to wrestle with the Bible's answers to these questions. This morning we ask, can I be good without God? Or do I need God in order to make sense of morality? Or maybe, maybe this is the way we think of the question. Why can't I do whatever I want as long as I'm not hurting anyone? Why can't I just do whatever I want? All right, so listen as I read from the Apostle's letter to the Romans where he, he shows that every one of us is accountable to God. We're in Romans chapter 3. The Apostle Paul has just quoted from the Old Testament to show the sinfulness of each person, and now he draws some conclusions for us here. I'm going to begin reading at verse 19. Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you for the power of your word, and I pray that you would give us clarity of insight into the truth of Scripture, where we are are tempted to, to slide out from under the spotlight of your word, Lord, that we would feel the conviction of sin today, and then instead of trying to justify ourselves, we would turn to Jesus and find our hope our justification, our joy and satisfaction in Him. And so, Father, we come praying in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. A few weeks ago, I was leaving the church for a lunch appointment with pastors here in the community when I received a a phone call from a childhood friend. Now, we stay in touch pretty regularly, and he calls me whenever his sales travels have him coming through Wilmington. So he said, Hey, just had a meeting canceled. I'm going to be in Wilmington at 12.30. Let's grab lunch. So I did the mental calculation. Lunch with my longtime friend who needs to hear about Jesus or lunch with a bunch of pastors who already know about Jesus. All right, quick and easy decision to make. And so, so because we've had important conversations for you know, 30 years, we kind of quickly moved past the, the casual and jump into deep conversation. I actually talked to him this week to ask, hey, would you be okay with me sharing? He gave permission for me to share our whole conversation with you. And 
and we we were we were talking, and and he's a he's a father of a of a young daughter, and um, somehow it came up that you know if anyone ever did anything to her, like he would hunt that person down, and he spoke with the like passion of a father who loves his his daughter, and and then I asked him, I said, I said, okay, but but what's the basis for your moral outrage? The sense that if somebody did something wrong to your daughter, that they would deserve punishment. Why, why do you react that way? See, I, I believe we live in a world made by God. God is a good God, and so he's given us a moral framework to live. And so when somebody commits evil, they should be held accountable. But, but you've told me that you know, you're not really sure about God. There's probably some sort of cosmic power or presence maybe. But, but how do you make sense of this moral outrage you would feel? If somebody were to harm your daughter. Now, my, my friend's a, a thoughtful guy. We've had this conversation before. And so, so he, he, he said, well, I, you know, I think we all basically agree on what's right and wrong. You know, if you polled the world religions, he said, I, I think they'd come to consensus on, on what they think is, is right and wrong. And so then I told him, I said, well, I, I read an article this week. So it was an article that came out earlier this month. I said, it was a, a horrific investigation into a news report from another part of the world. The report in this article described what were locally termed pleasure marriages. They were temporary marriages designed to avoid breaking the, the region's religious prohibitions against prostitution. So the idea is you pay a religious authority, he marries you to a woman for a temporary amount of time, Therefore, whatever happens during that time is not wrong, but then it ends, and you're free to walk away from this pleasure marriage. See, because the woman becomes his temporary wife, then whatever happens is okay. Now, some push the practice to the extreme, whereas the pleasure marriage lasts only half an hour, only for the next one to begin. But I said the most horrific aspect of this news report was that some of these so-called brides were 11 and 12-year-old little girls. And so I looked at my friend and I said, I would decry such actions as sexual abuse, as the rape of a child, because every child is made in God's image, and so each of those girls deserves the protection of the law. And, And thankfully, even in this country, it is illegal for this to take place, but it's culturally and religiously acceptable. And so I looked at him and I said, do you think this is wrong? And we had started the conversation, he's the dad of a little girl. And so thankfully, he had the same moral revulsion to these kinds of actions. He's, of course that's wrong. Okay, well, how would you tell them they're wrong? Well, I would try to explain that children... Okay, well, I guess I would describe how my culture views the issue, but then I guess I wouldn't want my culture to tell their culture that they're wrong because then I would be. And at this point, he, he, just, he just ends the conversation and says, this is awful. I'm done. He gets up and walks away. And, 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 and to be honest, I mean, we've, we, he knows the conversation will continue. We've had, been having this, these kinds of conversations for, for 30 years. And we both admittedly had other appointments later that day. 
But it's horrifying to have a view of the world that cannot call evil, evil. They cannot look at injustice and say, that's wrong, and somebody should stop it. Because a Christian understanding of good and evil acknowledges that each person has value. Every human has value. Little girls on the other side of the world have value. Because each one is made by God to reflect the glory of God. See, as Christians, we can call something evil because God calls it evil. Now, lest we pride ourselves for our noble morality as Christians, I want us to remember who we would be without God's grace. See, you haven't perhaps justified a pleasure marriage in your own life, but you, you could put that adjective in front of something else. Something else that you've said, but, but I have to have this. This is what will make me happy. And as we turn to Romans 3, we find the, the horror that each one of us is held accountable before God. Romans 3 forces us to examine ourselves. Look back at verse 19. Paul is arguing that, that everyone who hears from God, who hears the commands of God, is now accountable to God. He says in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. And so that's our first point. We are all accountable to God. And if you, if you try and wiggle yourself out from under it and say, but I'm not Jewish, therefore I'm not under the Jewish law, okay, well, we did skip chapter 2, but just turn the page with me or, or glance across at chapter 2, verse 14. Paul, in chapter 3, turns the argument against his fellow Jews, those that consider themselves religious, but he has already said in chapter 2, all of us, every one of us, wherever we were born, under whatever religious system we grew up, every one of us is accountable to God. Look at verse 14 of chapter 2. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. Do you see what Paul is saying? Jews stand accountable before God because they are under God's law. They have the law written down, written by the hand of God on tablets of stone given to Moses. And you say, but that's not me. Well, what he says is everyone else, as soon as you make a moral decision and you say that's not right, you have become a law unto yourself. You have declared that, that what, is, what God made, what he wrote down in the law, is, is imprinted on your soul, on your conscience, on the very core of who you are. As soon as you stand up and say, of course that's wrong, then there's a standard by which you too will be held accountable. But see, we live in a culture that tries to find morality without God. But in the end, all we end up saying culturally is if if morals, right and wrong, are just personal decisions, it's just my personal feeling, well, then as soon as someone in culture says that Christians are wrong to have standards, right and wrong, that would apply to everyone, don't you see what is happening? As soon as you say you're wrong, you are imposing your standards on me. What you're really saying is, 
well, your moral values, they're socially constructed. It's just based on what you've heard in church. It's, it's based on some, some antiquated religious system that's been passed down to you. Your moral values culturally, this is what we're, we're, we hear. Maybe this is the way you've come in thinking today. Your moral values, they're socially constructed, but, but mine are not. Because in theory, we can live as moral relativists, saying morality is individual. It's, it's either relative to the, the person or more commonly, I think we live as, we, we try and live as moral relativists in, in terms of what our culture tells us. You know, we don't want to be on the wrong side of history, we hear the argument. And so you've got to come along with our moral values. And so we, we as Americans are tempted to live by a cultural standard of moral values. But see, that's then relative to the cultural standard. And then we become trapped in our own culture because how do we tell a culture on the other side of the world that they're wrong? Because in theory, we can be moral relativists, but in practice, we have to have some absolutes. Otherwise, anybody can do whatever they want to you. And so your moral absolutes might, might be small. You might only have a few things you would say, these are absolutes, but every one of us has to make value judgments. To, to say, can I do whatever I want as long as I'm not hurting somebody else? Okay, well, we might be okay on agreeing to that as a general concept, except we don't agree on the idea of what it means to hurt someone else. That's the whole point of morality, of, of ethical discussions, is, well, once we get into the details, do you and I really agree about the details here? See, and the problem with living by that standard, uh, but as long as I'm not harming anyone, well, culturally, I would say if you do that to an 11-year-old girl, you are harming her, and you are harming your own soul in doing so. But another culture says, but no, that's completely morally acceptable. See, we don't agree on even the harm that's done in, in what seems to me should be an obvious instance where we should be able to agree. See, as Christians, we believe our view of the world makes sense. We believe our view of the world is coherent. It, it connects together because we live in God's world and we have heard from God's word. And so because we live in the world God made and we have had God explain it to us, we believe our view of the world makes sense. Which means other views of the world are going at some point to get, to get pulled apart. You're, there's going to be a place in which they're inconsistent, in which they don't match up, because everyone lives in God's world. Everyone has an imprint of God's moral standards pressed upon their lives. But so many of us try and reject those standards. And so you might say, yeah, but, but Kevin, how would I ever go about exposing that kind of strategy? I mean, you, in preparing for a sermon series, you're reading articles about ethics and morality. And so, so you had an article right at hand when you're in, in conversation with your friend at lunch. I don't have an article right at hand. All right, so I'm going to make it easy. All I was really doing was working with the apologetic strategy of a three-year-old. Okay, let me explain it this way. What's the number one question a three-year-old asks? Why? 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 So that's your apologetic strategy. Just keep asking that question. Why? Why'd you say it that way? Why do you believe that? Now, you can, you can get creative because you're not a three-year-old. So you could say it in another way. You could say, well, what basis do you have for believing that? But all I'm really asking you to do is just ask a bunch of questions. That's all I did. 
I just asked why. Why do you think you can have a, a moral framework without a belief in God? Why do you think we all agree on, on values and morality? Why do you think cultures differ in what they believe? Why do you believe what you believe? That's really the question I just kept asking again and again. To the point where he got so frustrated by the conversation, he was like, that's it, we're done. And got up and walked away from the table. Now, he'll call me the next time he's coming through town. We talked again, I told you, this week. He wasn't offended. He, he was glad for me to share this conversation with all of you. Although, to be fair, he doesn't call you church members. He calls you cult followers. So, um, all we have to do is keep asking the other person, why are you making that kind of claim? Because at some point, it's going to unravel. Unless you admit, living in God's world, that you're going to align your life with his word. Which means sometimes as Christians, we have to admit that what we claim to believe and what we actually believe don't match up. And so we have to change the way that we act. But, but see, the, the news isn't just that we're all accountable to God. Romans 3 makes the, the claim much, in much worse terms. We are all guilty before God. It's not merely that we will be called to an account. It's that you have already had your chance to defend yourself, and your actions, your lives, your attitudes condemn you. Look at, look at how stark Paul is with his language. Look at verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight. So how many people, when held to account, can prove their righteousness? No one. Not one. Verse 23, which is a verse that perhaps you have learned and memorized, Romans 3.23, a, a, a pivotal verse in Paul's argument here, when he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Who has fallen short of God's glory? Who has sinned? All of us. You see what Paul is saying? You can't hide under religious observance of the law. You can't hide under your own, your own moral framework. All of us are accountable before God, and all of us are guilty. And yet we don't want to admit it. We want to kind of say, well, yeah, but I'm not really that bad. I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I wouldn't do that. When you read an article like, like what, what happens on the other side of the world, you say, but I would never go there. I would never do that kind of thing. And my dad used to have a, a, a race car, a dragster. It was a 1929 Ford Roadster, so it was just cool looking in general. But then he put a giant engine in it and raced it really fast down a... Down, and so, so he, he took it. He was invited. He would go to, to schools or to car shows and, and, and share the gospel. And he was invited to a Christian school uh, near where we grew up. And because the school served families in the community, when, when he was invited, they said, we want you, you know, my dad was a, a Baptist, is a Baptist preacher, we want you to make the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done, clear. Because we have families in our community, we have kids in our school that, that haven't placed their trust in Christ. And so we want this, coming outside to see a really cool race car, to be an opportunity for them to be challenged with the truth of God's Word. And so my dad was explaining that, that each one of us needs a Savior. Everyone needs a Savior because we all make mistakes. And so we asked the gathered crowd of, of kids and, and teachers and, and faculty and administrators, and, and he says, is there anyone here who's never made a mistake? And one little hand goes up. 
And so my dad walks over, and, and this time in a much more, more gentle tone, says to the little boy, are you telling me you've never made a mistake? And the boy kind of gulps and said, I think I just did. So because if we're honest, we have to admit. For some of us, it, we can't even trace back an hour without a big and obvious sin. For some of us, we can't get through a sermon without arrogance and pride leaking through. But we certainly can't trace a day or a week or a month where we haven't failed, even our own standards. And so what are we being asked to do? Admit your mistakes. Confess that you are a sinner. You are accountable to God. You are guilty before God. See, but this passage gives us such good news that we can be righteous before God. Look at verses 21 and 22. Paul describing a righteousness from God, a gift that God gives to us of being made right with him. He says, but now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Do you hear the good news there? See, Paul has condemned every one of us by putting us in the, in the, in the, in the box before God to plead our case. But what is our case? I am not righteous. I have turned away from you. I am guilty before you, God. But Paul offers the good news that there is a gift from God that comes by grace, freely bestowed on us, not something we earn, not something we can deserve. It comes through faith in Christ, a trust that Jesus is the Savior, that he is righteousness on our behalf. He is a righteous gift from God, the one who kept God's law, the one who is the standard of good and, and right one who is pure and perfect. And then Paul uses this language of justification that, verse 24, we have been justified freely by God's grace. Now, I mentioned last week that justification, this idea of being justified, is this is an important theological concept. You can't understand the book of Romans. You can't, last week, understand the book of Galatians. You really can't understand the New Testament, the Bible, without understanding this concept. And so it's worth us defining it. Justification, it's more than a pardon. It's more than declaring us not guilty. It's, it means that we have, yes, negatively our sins have been washed away, wiped away, paid for. But more than that, we have been made right with God. We've been conformed to God's perfect standards. Because Jesus himself stood in my place. That's what, that's what Paul is saying here. Jesus, verse 24, is the redemption. He is the price paid to free me from the penalty of my sins. He is the cost. The cost of his own life was paid to free me. Verse 25, God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. Jesus willingly died on the cross and shed his blood as the perfect sacrifice so that God could demonstrate his goodness, so that God could demonstrate his love, so that God could demonstrate his justice. 
It's a gift that we receive by faith, merely by throwing ourselves on the mercy of God, pleading, admitting that we are failures, we are sinners, we are guilty before God. And verse 26 says that that God did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ. So what Paul is saying is God is just in forgiving our sins, but only because he has justified us through Christ. Do you you see what he's worried about here? Is that, that we might think that what Jesus did on the cross was get God to kind of wink at our sin. Like, hey, no big deal. It's no problem. But see, a judge who lets the guilty go free is not just. And so if you and I still bear the weight of our sins, if we still wear the moral culpability for what we have done wrong, if God then lets us go free, then yes, God is a forgiving God. We might even call him a loving God, but he is not just if he lets the guilty go free. But you see, because Christ died as an atoning sacrifice, my sin taken off of me, placed onto Christ, and Christ bore the full weight of my sin on the cross in his death. Now God is just in punishing my sin. And I am justified. I walk free because there is no guilt left to bear. Jesus took all of my guilt in himself. He paid the full penalty. The perfect, righteous sacrifice died for me. God has demonstrated his love for us. Will you confess your sin and find your hope in him? And so if we ask the question, can I be good without God? Well, yes. Thankfully, if you deny the existence of God, you may actually be a pretty nice neighbor, a pretty kind person, somebody that people like to hang around. Because you live in God's world, you, you are in the, the realm of God's common grace, you live in the world that he's given, and you have the remnant of his law, his commands, impressed upon your life. And so at one level, can I be good without God? Sort of. But at the ultimate level, can I truly be good? If I deny God? No. You stand accountable before God. You stand guilty before God. Well, can I, can I do whatever I want as long as I don't hurt anyone else? No. Because you're so distorted by sin that you can't even be honest about what it would be to harm another person. See, we are creatures with moral obligations before God to one another. Yes, you can try to make sense of morality without God, but you are left in a world where you can't condemn anyone. You can't really call anything truly evil. But in God's Word, we have the horror of our own evil revealed. But more than that, we have the grace of God displayed. God is the one who justifies us freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. This is our hope. Jesus is our righteousness. Let me pray for us as we come 
to the Lord's table. Father, we thank you for the power of your word, your willingness to be truthful with us about our sin and rebellion. God, we thank you that you are the God of justice and goodness and mercy and truth. And so, Father in heaven, we pray that you would show us our sins, that we would find hope in Jesus, our Savior. Lord, I pray that as we come to this table, we would be reminded that Jesus is the one who sacrificed himself for us. He is our atoning sacrifice. And so, Father, let us find hope in him. For those who have listened to your word without faith in Christ, Lord, I pray that now, even as they watch, even as they observe your church in continued worship, that they would find hope in Jesus, our Savior. Father, we come because of the grace that's been given to us. We come pleading for mercy. And we come in the name of Jesus. Amen.